0: Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know, I was moderating a discussion panel at the big Hakosaka event last month. And before things kicked off, I sat down at a cafe with Kyohi Kang, the founder of Atmoff. Now, Atmoth is one of those ideas that is so obvious once you see it, that you're sure that someone has thought of it before. In fact, you're pretty sure that you've thought of it before. We did, right? And yet, Atmoff seems to be the only company in the world that is producing this product. What is it? Well, I'm getting to that. You'll hear a lot of the details during the interview, and it's always challenging to describe something so intensely visual on an audio podcast. But Atmoff is literally a window onto the world. It's a 27-inch diameter monitor that's mounted in a picture frame and it displays the sights and sounds of, well, anywhere really. A window onto a Polynesian beach, a Roman piazza, anywhere. Kyohei and I also talk about how Atmoff's very successful Kickstarter campaign almost bankrupted his company. And since the team has run crowdfunding campaigns in both the U.S. and Japan, we'll go over some of the most important differences between the platforms in both countries. And more importantly, the important differences about the customers and the customer expectations in both countries. And even though we met in Osaka... We talk a lot about Kyoto. Kyoto has the potential to become one of the most important startup communities in Japan. It's not quite there yet, but there is a lot of promising signs. And a lot of promising startups, for that matter. But you know, Kyohi tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Kyohi Kang of Atmoth. And it's kind of a, a digital window. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you for inviting for this interview. I think you guys have got a really, really interesting product. But you can probably explain it a lot better than just digital
1: window. So yes. tell us a bit about what AppMoff is. We are calling digital window, but the concept is very simple. And you can hang on your wall. And it's a 27-inch display and once you hang it on your wall, you can see a view of the world and every content is filmed by us in 4K and you can see such as uh, views in Iceland, France, Germany uh, and also Hawaii, Japan, anywhere in the world. And it also has uh, sound as well, right? Right. It has a, a, one speaker inside so that you can feel as if you are actually there, like Hawaiian beaches, sound of the waves and sound of birds. Now, I, I've noticed that, I mean, looking around the
0: world, in, in, there are lots of kind of digital picture frames for still images. But Atmos seems to be one of the very, very few companies that has has brought a video window type of a concept
1: to market. Why do you think that is? There are many uh, digital art frame companies out there, but we wanted to have a window, like a virtual window. In nature, everything is moving, like wind and also the fires and birds flying. So to feel as if it's real, we thought it should be moving. So,
0: the, the idea is kind of the window out into the world. So, if I had Atmoff installed and it was um, looking out into a Hawaiian beach, would I see like the scene changing at different times of the
1: day? Yes, yes, indeed. There are many locations and also many uh, season and many different times. So, you can see in the morning or sunset or nighttime. So... Tell me about your customers. Who's using Atmoth? From last year we started shipping and about a half of our customers is purchasing our window because there's some kind of closeness in their environment. Like uh, from their window, they can only see their next buildings or highways.
0: So are most of your customers I mean, is it consumers
1: or is it office space? Is it... 70% is uh, consumer. The rest is restaurants, bars and clinics, offices. Well, I I could see why this would be very attractive to to restaurants in
0: particular, especially in Japan. There's so many basement Italian restaurants that you could
1: have a window out on Florence or something. Actually, there are many, really many uh, places... A cafe or a bar without any window. Yeah. So yeah, that should be at all, all of our targets.
0: This seems to be almost a perfect target for you. So let's, let's back up a bit. So this started out... Well, it started out as an idea. <laughs> but back in 2015, you, you launched a very successful Kickstarter campaign. Yes, we did. How did that go?
1: Running a Kickstarter campaign from Japan has got to be somewhat challenging. It was all about challenging because uh, at that time doing Kickstarter in Japan was very rare so it was hard to do and for us that was our first uh, crowdfunding project so everything was very tough. The reason we needed to do crowdfunding was we didn't have enough money to do the manufacturing production. Also many people are asking nobody would want A digital window. Everybody said. So uh, I needed to prove at least some customers should buy. And and how much did you raise on Kickstarter? About 160,000 US dollars.
0: Okay, so that's a substantial raise. More than enough to get the product through the first batch of production.
1: Yes, we thought but uh, we needed more money because uh, making injection molding, it costs a lot. And also uh, to do a project for uh, crowdfunding, we need to reduce the price because it's a kind of uh, pre-sale. Well, you mentioned
0: that it wasn't quite enough money, but you you did deliver the product. So how did you do that?
1: Yes. Kickstarter campaign was good. And also, after that, we did another crowdfunding in Japan, too. That's right. You
0: ran a Makuake. makuake
1: yes. We did that, too. But uh, it seemed okay. but. To make enough products, we needed to collect more. And we asked for some governmental bank for startups loan. And also, uh, one year later, we did a first round of VC funding, 1 million US dollar, approximately. Was the VC
0: funding after you delivered the product or while you were still in? No, while. Oh, wow. So you needed that funding in order to fulfill the Kickstarter promises. Right. What turned out to be the difficult part? What did you underestimate?
1: Underestimate too many things. But uh, (laughs) first, uh, it was our first time doing the production. So we needed to find good manufacturers. But it was very hard. So uh, each time we visit and find, they said, we can't do this. We can't do this in small that or something.
0: So, so did you do your manufacturing in Japan or in uh, yes, China? In, in
1: Japan. In Japan? Yes. Actually, but we have about five manufacturers coordinating each other. So assembling is in Nara next to Kyoto. And also the board production is in Osaka. And some plastic parts and cables are in Shanghai, near Shanghai. Okay. So all products gathered in Nara and assembled.
0: Almost all of the hardware products on, not just Kickstarter, but the hardware startups tend to outsource to China. Yes. Why did you decide to have your manufacturing in Japan, even though you knew the costs were going to be much higher?
1: Yes, because, actually it sounds uh, weird, but because we didn't have enough money. To do manufacturing in China, we needed to travel often to do the negotiation or see actual projects going on, but we didn't have money. We needed to save our money. So we were based in Kyoto, so there were many manufacturers in Kansai area because in the past, Panasonic, manufacturing, there are many bunch of them. So we thought it's easier and also cheaper and better quality to do in Kansai area. But cost? Get uh, a little bit expensive than we thought. What surprised you? What what drove the costs up?
0: Was it just having to do multiple prototypes, or were why did it
1: cost so much more than you thought? Yes, uh, that's because we underestimated small things, like uh, we we checked our cost of LCD panel and also the computer boards, but uh, we did uh, all the assumption, but. Minor things like uh, tiny plugs or tiny connectors and tiny cables and manhandling and all the costs sums up. But I mean, when you're talking about tiny plugs, do you mean the actual
0: hardware or do you mean like the design part or... Because the plugs are a
1: couple of cents each, right? I'm actually... It, it's more expensive. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, maybe is, that's what got you into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Each connector is uh, sometimes one US dollar. So it sums up to 10 US dollars. Oh, wow. Easily. And we needed some storage and also uh, Wi-Fi adapter. At the time, those prices were going up. So it depends on the world consumption rate also. If you had it... If you had the chance to do it again, mm-hmm. uh,
0: if you could go back to when you were just starting your Kickstarter campaign,
1: what would you do differently? Make sure to find the best manufacturer and make a simple design as possible. Not in terms of industrial de- design, in terms yeah. of electronic boards and all the cable and assembly process. And So you mean just have as few parts
0: as possible? or?
1: No, uh, we can always uh, make it in simpler forms, boards or plastic parts or anything, like uh, boxes too. But before fixing the budget, we need to make it simple as possible. But at that time, we didn't know we should do that or we didn't have enough knowledge how we could achieve that. So... There were many abundant process or parts and design. It was not simple enough. Can, can you give me an example of that? I'm... Suppose we are making next model, we would make a single board composed of CPU and sensor and power and speaker, amps, anything. But right now we are making three or four boards and each costs a lot in sum. That makes sense.
0: Actually, going back to the crowdfunding, you ran a Kickstarter campaign in the U.S. and you ran a makuake campaign here in Japan. How is
1: crowdfunding in the U.S. different from Japan? Kind of big difference because crowdfunding started in the U.S. and Kickstarter. Kickstarter is more for arts and science. Uh, in Japan, crowdfunding is for almost everything, but Kickstarter prohibits to very specific field. And also for Kickstarter, the users are very accustomed to what is crowdfunding. It's not a store. So our supporters patiently waited for a long time. Like We delayed almost about a year or so. But uh, they have Patiently waited, and in Japan, for the makuake our customers uh, waited a long time too, but uh, there were some people get angry. about uh, why, why the delay or... delay and why the specification has changed or uh, but less happened in Kickstarter, because uh, the customer in Kickstarter they understood more what is crowdfunding.
0: Yeah, that it's more of a project. And, and yes. What about after you shipped? I mean, Japanese consumers are famous around the world for being
1: very, very demanding of quality. And yeah, that's right. That's correct. And because uh, it was our first production, uh, we made many mistakes. And right now, everything okay. But uh, Japanese customers are very... Uh, they can tell a uh, tiny difference... But that helps us a lot to improve our product quality. Mm. Right now, uh, we don't have much claims. But about a half year ago, we had many. And, but that helped us a lot.
0: Crowdfunding is still... I wouldn't say it's rare in Japan. But it's not nearly as popular in Japan as it is in America. Yes. And actually, a lot of Japanese startups will use Kickstarter or Indiegogo instead of Japanese, do you think the attitude is changing or do you think that Japanese
1: consumers are just still very demanding of
0: uh, crowdfunded I projects? Think it's
1: very, very changing in a fast pace. For recent years, I can, I can tell it's changing a lot because there are many projects launched in makuake and also other platforms too, and people get accustomed, uh, especially in technology field. So it has changed, I should say. Okay.
0: You're based in Kyoto, and Kyoto has a lot of hardware startups. Yes. Among the startups that choose crowdfunding today, are most of them using U.S. crowdfunding, or are they using Japanese crowdfunding?
1: Uh, I think half and half, or maybe two-thirds are choosing, or more, uh, Japanese crowdfunding. Oh, okay. So that has really changed in the yes, last few yes, years. I think so,
0: indeed. That's excellent. A lot of founders and a lot of, a lot of projects get a lot of momentum and a lot of sales through Kickstarter or through crowdfunding. But then they have trouble kind of keeping that momentum after the project is over. Did you have trouble keeping that momentum going?
1: Um, no, I couldn't successfully do that. Because first, after doing crowdfunding, we needed to 100 focus on manufacturing. So we did that for about a year, uh, doing almost no uh, marketing or something. Oh. Yes, because it was very hard uh, doing software development and hardware development, manufacturing, and after shipping, we gradually started like attending interior exhibition in Paris or U.S. So it was almost like starting again from scratch. Yes, indeed.
0: (laughs) Well, after the Kickstarter and makuaki campaigns ended, what's been your main source of sales and marketing?
1: Via our website, and we were accepting pre-orders. So that was almost only the channel. But I can feel now I should... Have done more aggressively on pre sales or make increasing sales channels. Every engineering founder I've
0: ever spoken to, and myself included, always feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's,
1: we're always too focused on the product, and later we say, Oh, no, no, I should have spent much more time in sales and marketing. <laughs> now I admit, uh, at the time, I thought putting our product on our website and that's it, but it doesn't go that way in the world. Yeah.
0: Now, your initial push for sales was Kickstarter, and you mentioned attending um, design exhibits in Europe.
1: Are most of your sales in Japan, or are they international? About 70 or 80% was from Japan. Because we were based in Kyoto and Japan, uh, there were sometimes there were, there were interv- interviews, and we were featured in articles and newspapers, and sometimes on TV. So that helped in Japan. And are you in full production now? or are you...
0: Yes. Okay, so what's, what's the future plans? Are you planning on, on scaling into mass production or are you planning on having this as a
1: kind of a small lot boutique product? We, we don't want to be a tiny maker. In the end, uh, I'm a huge sci-fi movie fan. And every time I see movies, there is always a virtual window. Right. So the goal is to become an interface of outside and inside world, like not only showing views, but you can actually interact with the world. You also
0: have a, a marketplace where users can download yes. hundreds or maybe even over a thousand different views, right? Five hundred. Five hundred so views. Or more. So... Before you were talking about making it a a genuine marketplace where you know users can upload their views and sell them online to the store are you guys moving forward with that plan as well
1: Yes yes uh, right now all the contents are filmed by us but in coming months our customers will be able to upload their own contents and after that they're going to be able to sell and after that we can be like OS of the window. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the iTunes model, right?
0: Yes, The next logical question then is, do you see your future as being a hardware company or a software company? It's really hard to scale up hardware. So do you see the future as maybe like partnering with Panasonic and Samsung and letting them do the hardware? It could be possible, but
1: uh, we are seeing a mix like apple software side is very important for us but we need to have some special sensors or camera or microphone or heat sensor co2 sensor whatever so that people can feel uh, more and more real about view or experiencing as if they are in hawaii or paris to achieve that only showing in some display is not enough so maybe we can make a product that enhances their, their experience. To do that, we need to make hardware too. Do
0: you think you will always be a hardware company? Is the goal just to get one or two more product iterations out there and make sure it's right, and then do partnerships? Or do you see the hardware as part of who you are?
1: Yes, uh, it's part of who we are. Yeah, so we are continuing making as a hardware. Okay.
0: Talk a bit about uh, Japan and, well, Kyoto specifically. Kyoto has got a very interesting and fast growing startup community. Well, you've been there for a while, so how, how do you think things have changed in Kyoto over the last five years, say?
1: Actually, five years ago, I moved from Tokyo to Kyoto, so in these five years, we have seen changes in these two or three years we've seen many startups coming from kyoto so i think it's changed gradually changing but uh, compared to tokyo the number of course is different but there's a sense of optimism kyoto has a long history and all the companies have history of hundreds of years so uh, startup thinks in long term so I think that's a good thing, and because there are many good universities in Kyoto, so uh, the startups are emerging every year, hopefully increasingly yes. A lot of startup
0: founders from all over Japan moved to Tokyo to start mm-hmm. their startups. Yes you moved from Tokyo to Kyoto. Yes
1: why The first reason was to work at Nintendo and the office was in Kyoto, but I loved Kyoto. Before that, uh, I was always traveling to Kyoto, and, but I never thought I was, I was gonna live in Kyoto and start a company. There are many beautiful places and beautiful history, and also nice universities, and also manufacturers. There are many, so uh, there's no reason uh, not starting in Kyoto.
0: It's interesting that, I mean, Osaka and Kyoto are are very close to each other in terms of distance. One of the problems that Osaka's startup community has had in the last 10 years is that whenever a startup begins growing and getting big, they tend to move the company to Tokyo. And that doesn't seem to be happening in Kyoto. It seems like Kyoto, the, the startups are staying there. Yeah, I, I can feel that yeah? too. Yeah. Why? Why do you think that is? What What do you think is the difference between the startup community in Kyoto and the startup community here in Osaka?
1: Maybe there's a nice combination of optimism in Kyoto, and thinking long term shit. Maybe only after making a company and surviving in five years or ten years. But in Kyoto, that's only a short time, they <laughs> s- think, they may think. And also, there are many big companies in Kyoto, like uh, Nintendo, Kyocera, Omelon, many, many companies, and selling their products overseas, and they have strong brands. So I think that culture, technological company culture, is stronger than Osaka. Yeah. Yeah, I could see
0: that. I mean, it is interesting because there's there's lots of different cities in Japan where you can say, well, yes, they've got all the all the parts. But I think um, Fukuoka, I think, is one of the few places in Japan that has a really strong startup community. And I think Kyoto seems to be emerging as a, a startup community there as well. Yeah. I, I think the biggest difference is, I mean, I've been to Kyoto a number of times, and it, it really does feel like... A community of startups. The people know each other, and they.
1: There are many communities in Kyoto. too, And recent years, there are many foreigners, like uh, non-Japan-born people, are coming, uh, gathering in Kyoto. And that's one good thing because there's uh, many community like makers bootcamp, and they connect with other cities and other countries' people gathering kyoto and doing some hardware projects or something like that and also kyoto is number one or two travel city in japan so there are many travelers coming too and they stay in kyoto too sometimes
0: it is interesting because kyoto has a reputation of being very traditional and conservative even by japanese standards so it's very interesting that we're seeing a startup community being built up there.
1: Yes, that point is right. And Kyoto is conservative. That's absolutely right. But at the same time, they are finding uh, new ways. So maybe Kyoto City is also looking for a way to uh, incorporate new things, new innovation or something.
0: So conservative but practical.
1: Right, right. <laughs>
0: Well, listen, Kyohei, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you you could change one thing about Japan. One thing? Anything at all. The education system, the, the legal system, the way people think about risk, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan.
1: What would you change? I would say to be non-critical or less critical because uh, I was born in Tokyo so I know uh, people are talking in small uh, volume in trains because they are scared somebody might be critical about your volume or if you have eccentric idea maybe you feel uh, some people might be critical about that or if you're singing in the street, maybe people can be critical or non happy about that. It can be said all the people in Japan are feeling a little bit more optimistic and a little bit more non-critical. I think things will uh, change in more better ways. So you
0: think it would, if people were less critical, it's easier for artists and entrepreneurs and everyone really to, to take new risks and try
1: new things? Yes, that would happen and increasing innovation but of course being critical is important but not all the time. But it's that balance it, it's like you mentioned before with
0: the crowdfunding you mentioned that your Japanese users were very critical
1: yes, of your, right. your product. Right.
0: In the long run being critical is good. It helps you improve the product. But when you're first struggling to, to make it,
1: yes, indeed, I think that's very important.
0: Do you think that's changing in Japan? Uh, I think
1: so. Japan is becoming diverse. Like uh, I read on some article and says in Shinjuku area in Tokyo, one eighth born is non-Japanese. So it's it's very high number in Japan. So it's becoming diverse city, Tokyo, and also other area too, and Kyoto too. And different thoughts and different uh, people from different countries may make a little non-critical. Just because it would make people have a little more open mind and have new experiences? Yes, and also uh, so that Japanese can think their people with other thought just to see that is important I guess you know it's, it's interesting though because I think that
0: I think you're right Japanese people are extremely critical compared to just about anywhere else in the world but I, I think there's a difference because it also can be an advantage when you're critical of yourself and your desire to succeed and build a beautiful product yeah. that's a really
1: powerful thing right
0: but maybe we just need to be less critical of other people.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult yeah. Yeah, for me too, but uh, yeah, that sounds perfect.
0: Yeah. All right, listen, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Thank I you, really you so much. appreciate it. Thank you. And we're back. I loved Kyohi's thoughts on and his experience with criticism in Japan. This criticism... And this sense of public shame is really something that both holds people back in Japan and also propels them to truly fantastic levels of achievement. Now, Kiyohe's right that there is this tendency to criticize others' work and this fear of being criticized that often prevents startups from releasing products and getting user feedback as quickly as they should. But that same instinct can lead to a desire for perfection that has made Japan the world leader in cars and cameras and so many other things. However, there's a subtlety here that we really need to look at more closely. Many people point out that Japanese startups are too slow to release their initial products and prototypes, and that they should get user feedback sooner rather than spending time polishing a product that might not be what the customer wants. There's a lot of truth in that, but we need to remember that it is the customer and not the startup founder that determines what is a minimum viable product. As a startup, your opinion doesn't really matter a whole lot here. If you don't have a client who is willing to use your product, then by definition, it's not viable and you need to put some more work into it. Startups in Japan have to spend more time developing their initial product because Japanese businesses and Japanese consumers demand more. I've spent most of my life selling B2B software and I can tell you that American companies are some of the best initial clients you can have and Japanese companies are some of the worst. American firms seem to know what they're getting into. You'll usually be able to find a sponsor and a champion in the organization who will work with you and brainstorm with you and try to come up with ways that you might be able to improve your product to meet the company's needs and broader industry needs. In Japan, such people do exist, but they're exceedingly rare. I've been fortunate enough to work with one or two, But for the most part, Japanese corporate clients want to interact with startups the same way they do their enterprise vendors. They expect your product to work, to integrate with their workflow, to have comprehensive support and documentation, and they sure as hell don't think it's their job to teach you about the industry. The end result is that a minimum viable product in Japan is a lot less minimal than it is in the United States. But you know, this is changing. There has been a real growth in startup events and enterprise startup matching programs over the past few years. And more and more Japanese executives are slowly coming around to the idea and the role of being a mentor and being engaged with the startup team. It's a slow transition, but we're seeing it. In everything from Kickstarter campaigns to enterprise B2B software sales, Japanese customers are being a little more tolerant and a little more understanding of the efforts of creatives and of startups. And that, combined with the Japanese long-term focus on improvement and perfection, might just give Japan a unique advantage and a unique place in a competitive startup world. If you have thoughts about Windows on the World or how minimal a minimal viable product can really be, Kyohi and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 115 and tell us about it. And when you come by the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Kohei and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And hey, by the way, please feel free to get in touch and connect with Disrupting Japan on Twitter and Facebook, and even drop by our LinkedIn group. A quick search for Disrupting Japan on any of those platforms will take you right to us. I'd love to hear from you, and we have a lot more information about Japan on the social media sites and on our website as well. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.